Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, welcome to The Signal Line, and I'm Dan Smith. Today's podcast is an April 22nd, 2022 AMA with Dale E. Graff. Now, Dale is a physicist and a former director of Project Stargate, which included the Fort Meade Remote Viewing Unit from the years 1990 to 1993. His association with the remote viewing program spans 18 plus years. Dell became involved with the remote viewing research in 1976 as the Department of Defense contract manager for RV research at the Stanford Research Institute and then eventually a director of Stargate. Stargate was the military remote viewing program. Dell is the person who assigned the name Stargate to the program in 1990. Dell Graff presents seminars and workshops for individuals through Sci Seminars Initiative and his dream seminar focus is on precognition and healing potential. His published books include Tracks in the Psychic Wilderness and River of Dreams. And more recently, Dale has accepted a role in IRVA, the International Remote Viewing Association, as Vice President. This is a really informative chat with one of the key players in remote viewing research going back decades, so enjoy the information that he shares. Have a great time. Namaste. Well, Dale, we can see you and we can yeah. hear you. Yeah. So just kind of trust the system. <laughs> okay. So some of the questions then. Uh, I'll go first with one from uh, a guy called Rich Krankowski on, on YouTube. Uh, sorry, on Facebook. And he said, could you ask Dale the specifics about the Russian bomber crash event? How many, uh, how many and who were the remote viewers and mm -hmm. how many sessions did they work and who requested it? Yeah, you know, this is exactly what I was going to go into great detail on. I have a, um, I have that in here, in my in my visuals. <clears throat> so, what I can do is discuss it in, in general sense, yeah. and then uh, maybe come back with the visuals when we have this thing set up. Absolutely, yeah. Does that work. Yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Meanwhile, I'll keep uh, fiddling around here. Maybe something will come to be in. Uh, Nope. No. Nope. Okay. <clears throat> on the on the Russian bomber thing, that was the actual first time that I was brought into a um, to an operational project, and uh, it was it was actually a, a quite a surprise because I had no idea that there was a, such a search project going on at the Foreign Technology Division in Dayton, Ohio. I had just started my work with the uh, with remote viewing. I just become not too long before that, the contract manager for the research at SRI. And um, I found some people interested in remote viewing at, F at FTD. <clears throat> the interesting thing about that was I was not advertising. I was not looking for people to do remote viewing. Uh, we were supposed to keep this very quiet and nobody should know that uh, we had a contract going. But a woman, an Air Force woman comes into the office one day 
and says, um, by the way, uh, I've heard you do remote viewing <laughs> research. And I said, well, that's a really wonderful. It's a secret program. And since you find out, you're hired. <laughs> so um, actually, I said, set up some good experiments with her and in the local Dayton area. And she did real well. Uh, she was just natural right uh, off the beginning uh, and really accurate. And, and she had a, an approach which was more visual. She could see things, uh, visualize them, sort of like Hella Hammond. Um, there were other people that I found that could do the viewing in the, in the projects we set up at FTD in the, what I call the um, outbounder type, like Helen Russ did, but she was exceptional. So we were just doing routine uh, um, around the city, around town uh, experiments. And uh, th then I get a call one day from one of the um, division chiefs at the Foreign Technology Division and said, hey, we have this really great project that we'd like you to, your, we, we, we hear you have remote viewers and we'd like to have one of your viewers work on our project. So I didn't know what it was about. And they took me into the room and um, they, well, I, they didn't really let me in the room. They just took me to the door and said, the only thing we can tell you, it's an airplane that's missing somewhere. It's a Soviet airplane. See if you can find it for us uh, with your remote viewers. They knew, they knew enough about what I was doing and they even used the term remote viewing. Now, I only had that one person that was really good. I had others too, but that was the only person I used for that project. So <clears throat> I called her aside that evening and, and said, and this is, this is on the side, when this is not truly official. Uh, we had to be careful what we were doing so that the division chiefs wouldn't catch on. Um, it, was, it was kind of approved by the commander, but he didn't want people to know that we were doing remote viewing. So I called her into the little office and um, I said, okay, here's a picture of the airplane. Um, the task is, where can it be found? And um, that's all. And I didn't know where it was. Um, I was only told it was an airplane. They showed me a picture of it, but I didn't recognize the markings of it. Uh, so, okay, I sat down and gave her the task. I said, okay, I relaxed uh, and she relaxed. And I just said, here's the picture of the airplane do whatever you can to find information that will allow us to find that will that will permit the air force to locate the airplane well she relaxed and we're both sitting there quietly i'm not saying much she, and she's not doing much just sitting there uh, maybe 15 or 20 minutes went by um and then she drew a picture she drew a map which she called a map of the flight path i said here's what i see happening that the airplane flew along a certain path, then it turned and went over here, crossing a big lake and crashed. So as well, sketch. So she drew the vision that she had seen. This, this was actually like a vision. Um, and after she drew her map, I took it to the, uh, the chief of the unit that was in charge of the search. And uh, he looked at it and said, well, uh, we don't know whether this is relevant or not. We'll, um, we'll take a look. And um, later that night, I get a call at home and said, yeah, your map seems to match the, the general area of where the search team is looking. 
So we went over there that next morning and um, she did another uh, take on this. And this time she actually marked on the topographic map where she thought best matched what she saw in her dreamlike vision. And uh, they put an X on the map, drew a, a line across that part of Africa, across the lake and crashed in a certain area she thought. And put an X on the map <clears throat> and we sent it to the field and we, with, uh, with secure coordinations, coordinates that we came up with, we sent it to the field and the, the search team in Africa um, actually uh, got, got the data. They were about to leave country because the team that was in there from the Foreign Technology Division analysts and the CIA, Chief of Station people, um, they were in there clandestinely. So the Air Force and the CIA were not supposed to be in the country at the time. And this is the first time I realized that this was in Africa uh, after I saw the map. So the team was about to leave or had to leave the country, uh, but instead <clears throat> they decided to take one more, uh, one more look for the crashed airplane, the Soviet bomber. Uh, the pilot had defected and was flying south and uh, south from Libya and until he ran out of fuel, then he bailed out. And the natives saw the parachute and they thought they heard a crash. And that's where the search team was looking. But the mark that she had put on the map was like 70 to 80 miles west across the lake. Not anywhere near where the suspected search area was. But nevertheless, the helicopter team went over there in, uh, in that area. And when they landed in the clearing, uh, within a few minutes, a native came out of the jungle carrying a piece of the wreckage. <laughs> <laughs> so, so had had the helicopter not been there at that moment, yeah. um, they probably would not have even known the airplane was in the jungle. Um, so it was within about a mile and a half of the crash site. So this this was really the, the team then went in and uh, took care of the uh, the electronics, and that's what they were looking for: the electronics that was in the airplane and other navigational gear and got out of country with the, uh, with the equipment they wanted. There was, there was no fuel left, so the airplane didn't burn. So that you couldn't see it at all uh, from uh, the air. It, would, it just went right down into the thick trees. And only the natives walking around there um, saw some evidence of a crash and was starting to break the airplane apart to sell for junk, I guess, somewhere. Yep. So we got what we wanted, but it was, it was very tight timing. Uh, the, the, uh, the team had to leave country that same day and uh, brought it back. Everybody got out in time. And uh, this is really a, a spectacular thing because uh, it went all the way up the chain of command. President Carter heard about it. And I actually talked about it openly in, in his book, actually uh, discussed the incident. So to answer your question directly, there was only one person involved, <laughs> someone that had never done any operational remote viewing before. Wow, that's fantastic. And th th this all occurred in, I think it was, wasn't it March 1979, I believe? Uh, yes, it was March of 1979. Yeah. Yes, yes. And this is why you were at the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base working for the Foreign Technology Division? Yeah. Yes, that's where I was. I was employed at that time as a um, <clears throat> systems analyst do, doing trends and forecast work uh, for actually writing documents for the Defense Intelligence Agency and for uh, the other groups in Washington that 
uh, relied on uh, trends and forecasts from the Foreign Technology Division. And um, at that time, I was involved in, uh, well, I, I just moved in, into that group. It was an advanced technology group, but I had actually been uh, doing missile and air, aircraft uh, forecasting before that. So that's where I was uh, at yep. the Foreign Technology Division at the time. And uh, that experience actually was <clears throat> nobody could believe it. Um, and it, the, um, there was so much sus suspicion that a special group was set up, unbeknownst to me, to, to investigate us, to make sure that there was no fraud or deception involved. NSA got into the picture and uh, did all kinds of checking on the communication networks to make sure that what we did really was sent to the field the day before and that it was acted on, uh, the information was acted on before um, we knew anything at all about the yeah. recovery of the airplane. So we, we got through with an absolute pure, clean slate. There's no way we could have known the information yeah. if, um, ahead of time. Plus, how else would it, would it matter? The airplane would not have been found. <laughs> Nothing would have come yes. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, this was this was this wasn't an official. This wasn't part of the official kind of Fort Meade unit. This was an ad hoc. Was it you kind of group that you set up? Did you go uh, and do other projects? In, yeah, it was an informal group that I had actually set up. Yeah. And uh, the reason I set it up, uh, we were so suspicious of some of the things that were going on in the in okay, yeah. outside uh, on the topic that we wanted to actually du duplicate wherever we could, some of the claims that were being made. Yes. And if we could find people within our own house with the proper security clearances, then that would be even better. Then, then we, we would have information that we produced ourselves yeah. that would validate the, the earlier claims about the validity of remote viewing and what it might be able to do for you. Now, I was able to do that with even before this operational task came up. Because I'd written a protocol, uh, a whole procedure for how the Air Force can apply remote viewing in locating missing airplanes. It was, it was something I just felt I should do uh, since I was now in charge of the um, remote viewing contract. And that was one of the reasons why we got into the contract in the first place was what can this phenomena do to help uh, the Air Force in its missions? And one of the biggest things is to find something. And you know, the Air Force does lose airplanes from time to time yeah, and people yeah. go missing. So yeah, so it fit right in. And I just got finished writing the protocol for how best to do this. And there were three phases to the protocol. One was what, what I would probably say is, is like what we call a double blind where nobody knows anything basically except here's a task and some reference number. Um, at that time, the coordinate remote viewing was a big thing at SRI. Um, but the more I started looking in, into what this was about, the, the less I thought that that was um, the best way to do this, because it didn't strike me that coordinates was the way to do it. <laughs> it seemed yeah, too yeah. superficial. Yeah. Um, plus, it was too, too prone to criticism. Uh, yes. any, anyone that looked at a coordinate would immediately say, okay, if your viewer had the Corbin, all you need to have is a good memory yes. of any of the maps on the earth, and you can come up with a pretty good rendering of what that area is. Yeah. Plus, a lot of the earth is in water anyway, covered by water. So, 
So we, we didn't want to use coordinates. And I'm talking about 1976 timeframe. Yes. And um, at FTD, the small group I had, and a few times we got into operational work, we did not use coordinates at all. Uh, stay away from that because that is almost like front loading. Uh, and the, the, in this case, you might argue the picture of the airplane was front loading. But what we didn't know was where in, in the world was this thing located. Absolutely, so, yes. Yeah. I, I bypassed that first kind of scientific step of double blind because we didn't have any time to work on the project. The, the, the individual who was running the, the search team coordination from uh, the front technology division said we got to have data by tonight or forget it <laughs> the, the team in the field has got to leave the country very soon so if you're going to do any good do it now <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so that's what we did yeah. and i think the, i've thought about this a lot and it's, it's unfortunate i don't have the pictures going but i've thought about this a lot and I finally come to the conclusion after <laughs> many years of pondering this particular experience that there was really a synergism going on here. Uh, that uh, here, here were people that were really, really in need to find something. And uh, the, the Air Force takes it very seriously when they go losing an airplane. And then when, when you're tasked to find another country's airplane, that's even more challenging and more exciting. There was a really strong need to do this. And Excellent. so the people that, that contacted me were really sincere. I mean, they, I'm not saying they believed it, yes. but they said, look, we have no other choice. <laughs> Absolutely. If, you, if you guys get as good as what we hear the rumors are, then you, you should be able to do this. So yeah. it was a really, I don't want to say pressure. I didn't want to, I did not want to have this kind of pressure overlaid on the woman that was working on this project. I wanted to keep it neutrally, emotionally clean as possible, other than the motivation part. And then my, for me, you know, I was kind of really caught in this one. Here, here I am, the contract manager of a, of a phenomena, which we think we can, we think we believe, <laughs> we're not sure yet. And, and I'm caught in that one. <clears throat> I don't want to see it fail because I look like a fool <laughs> for, for believing something that's not right. Yet I had to be careful. Yes, yes. I had to strike that balance between belief and skepticism. And then when I dealt with her, I had to be very careful uh, to be not overly enthused about it, but uh, but be neutral enough so that she was free to do her own thing. Yes, and she was it's very good at this, and uh, and then it just I think fell into a kind of a really deep level of. Uh, in, uh, she was really in some kind of zone, which uh, I, I don't know how to explain. And I think I was kind of along with it, uh, a, a kind of like a quiet coach, so to speak, in, in the background. So it was that one person, the only one that was worked on this project. Um, now, at one time, there was an interlude here, and I did, I did have um, a, an input from SRI and Gary Langford. But the inf the information was too general, and we could not use that. It did not help us in any way. But it was it was interesting, uh, an interesting input. But that was nothing that we did at FTD. That was that was an input from SRI. Right, but it was right. too late. We got it too late to 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 be of any use. Yes. And did the uh, did this kind of informal group go on to do other other projects, <laughs> or or was it a short lived? Uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> 
Oh my! <clears throat> now you're bringing up some stuff here. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we don't we don't have to talk about it if you know. No, no, not very I, no. I'm willing. I'm willing to do this. Okay, it's taking me off my script. I had a really nice run of slides here. Uh, so, but let me go into this. Yes, we did. Uh, <clears throat> after the excitement in in the Pentagon. And um, I was brought into it at, at fairly high levels to, to present this to um, the Air Force people and uh, some congressional people as well, which is probably not a good idea because of the congressional people couldn't uh, keep their mouth shut on this thing. And it got into the press. Um, <clears throat> anyway, we were brought into another search project. And uh, that had an... Uh, I was called in by, I don't think, I don't think it was the same person, but somebody at air staff in, in Washington, D.C. and said, the Air Force is missing an airplane. You know, can you find it? So again, okay, here's a picture of the airplane. Where is it? So I went through the same protocol that was this one and uh, the same procedure. And she ended up with a sketch in a, kind of a mountain area and put an X on the side of the mountain and said, yeah, it looks like it's right here. And um, I, I haven't, I took that to Washington, D.C. to the point of contact and uh, um, he sent it to the field and the people in the field were doing a helicopter search. It was a U.S. airplane that crashed in the U.S. somewhere. And they sent a helicopter out to that area and they said, well, we're not going out there again because we've been out there several days and there's nothing there, but we'll do one more trip. So they go out there on, and on this flight, they found an airplane within a quarter of a mile of where she had more, but it was not the right airplane. <laughs> it was an airplane that crashed there years ago that people lost track of. <laughs> wow, that's an interesting, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Half right. And then um, there was another input, which was actually closer but by this time, they, uh, they did not want to do any more searching. Uh, there was another input that was um, had pretty good markings of where the airplane was. In fact, the other input had two, uh, two airplanes. And it turned out that was the information that the Air Force was withholding. There were two airplanes missing. They only told us it was one. Um, the, the two airplanes were missing at the same time on a flight. Um, the pilots, I think, were jockeying around, having fun, and they both ran out of fuel and <laughs> crashed into the desert. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we did that. And the uh, the woman you used, I, I know the name of the woman. It's in a couple of books that I've got. I won't sit here just in case. Um, did she go on to do other remote viewing, or did you, you know, well, see, contact that with her? Here's, here's, <laughs> sometimes success can be your downfall. And um, when the chief of staff of the Air Force learned that the Foreign Technology Division was doing this mumbo jumbo, spooky stuff, <laughs> impossible to believe stuff called remote viewing, you know what he did? He canceled the program. Wow, yeah. And so here we are getting reasonably good results, not just in our experimental situation, but in, in the real world stuff. Even though we didn't go right to the airplane in the desert, we, we had close to it. It was the, it was the two inputs that we came up with. It canceled everything, the chief of staff of the Air Force. And that included the contract with the Stanford Research Institute as well. Wow. Okay, yeah. 
So everything went down the tubes real quick. And uh, at that time, <clears throat> I had just received an award that's from right, the right. Uh, director of Central Intelligence Agency, uh, is uh, one of the one of three that they award every year, yeah. uh, called the Outstanding Analyst Award. And so I was all set to go to uh, you know, a one to two year sabbatical, uh, at different places to study this and that. And my proposal included uh, electromagnetic effects uh, on the on the brain, things like that, including a, a subtitle of remote viewing. I didn't. I was careful how I worded it, but it, it was approved. So I was um, going to be one of those, but he canceled that too. Yeah. So the thing was such a shock, canceling everything. And there was such a stigma associated with what we now did after that finding of the, the African airplane that the Air Force woman resigned. She, she, had, she did not renew her, her um, next year's or whatever couple of years commitment to the Air Force and said, I've had enough, I'm getting out of here, and resigned and <clears throat> returned to civilian life. I did some work after that. I've been in touch with her. I kept in touch uh, for, for some years yeah. with her. And she was doing work, I think, with clients. And I think there was some a police case she was working on. But uh, then I lost contact with her. And it's only recently I learned that she had developed a mysterious illness and died suddenly a couple of years later. So that seems I mean, to happen a lot within the Yeah, it, it was a, a sad tale in a way. So we, we had a success with that. But it also we had a downside. Yes. And, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Dale, Dale, what uh, year did this Air Force chief of staff? What what year did he cancel everything? Well, I've all, I've all I have all the paperwork. I have everything in, in my files, including the memo that did it <laughs> from him. That was in nineteen January of nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when I worked with you on Project Stargate in the early 90s, that was not involved with the Air Force at all. No, because that's what motivated me to go to DIA. See, ah, okay. After, after that, after that cancellation, which basically wiped out half of what I was doing at FTD, um, it created quite an uproar at DIA. And um, Jack Ravona, who was very supportive of the field, of the area, um, and who I kept, who was a, a division chief at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and I'd kept informed of what we were doing and also of the uh, foreign assessment work that we were doing on this topic. Now, he was, he was really PO'd um, at the Air Force and was willing to um, organize a group to overturn this and go back to the chief, to the um, director of Central Intelligence Agency and actually uh, overturn the, the chief of staff of the Air Force's decision. So um, we, he called me on the phone and said, this is the plan. You know, we can do this. We can pull it off. We can, we can get everything back on track again and get you back on your sabbatical. But there's an alternative. Uh, you, you come down here and work for us. Yeah. And there's a position opening up uh, right now. You can be down here in a couple of weeks. And then 
we can forget about reversing that charge or that decision that the Air Force made and you try again later. So I realized at the time, yeah, this is what I'm gonna do. I'll forget about the sabbatical because that's not important anymore. Uh, <clears throat> I've got what I wanted. I got involved in the research. So I don't need the sabbatical, <laughs> forget that. So <clears throat> I, in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, I was down at DIA picking up where I was continued. So when, when you and I got together later on, that was when I was with DIA. That's mm. mm. had, had some research funding that was allocated for the project. Uh, was, was that when you were uh, chief of the Fort Meade unit? I think that was from 90 so, to 93, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that was 1990 to 1993. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So... Uh, so I moved down to Washington, D.C. in 1991, uh, in October. Um, what, what is really ironic, there was about a year, maybe about six months or more, between the time and the, when the, the effort uh, was canceled, and I moved down to Washington, D.C. And the, the strangest things happened. Uh, <clears throat> I was given a special assignment, and it was to, to I was part of this of the um, MX base evaluation team, and what what the Air Force had set up was a, a team that would examine the so-called MX missile basing concept to see whether or not the Soviets could penetrate it and figure out wh which missile. The, the canister, which which canister had the the missile, or, or which train car had had the missile. So, and so I ended up on this team that went around the country and out to the different bases and all that to try to come in with to, to try to identify techniques for locating or for sensing um, a missile in a, in, in a tank in, in a in a bunch of car beds on a, a rail line using all kinds of sensors and detectors. Uh, so oddly enough, I'm doing almost the same thing that the Air Force General, I think, was afraid of. And one of the reasons he canceled the project was he thought maybe someone in Congress would think remote viewing could defeat the MX concept because they would be able to move the probabilities from one out of 100 to, to one out of 10 or something like that. And they don't, and he did not want to even risk the, the possibility of someone thinking that and therefore threatening the MX, the multi billion dollar contract that the Air Force was trying to get through. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, but I think his real reason was more, you know, I really hate to go here because this is getting into speculation, but I've heard from Roundabout that the real reason he wanted to, didn't want the project to continue had more to do with the philosophical or religious beliefs. I don't know if that's true, but that was the speculation that uh, I picked up yeah. at some point later on. Either way, um, I ended up at DIA, uh, Rosemary uh, re retired from the Air Force, and uh, we went our different ways. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up continuing on at DIA with uh, uh, a lot of the activities and eventually um, was transferred up to Fort Meade, into, into the Fort Meade unit and, yeah. as the chief of the unit. And that's where I actually, I created the name Stargate when I was up there, or, or shortly before I got there, to replace yeah, yeah. some of the other code names that we had for the program. 
So one of the questions I have is a, uh, and it's a, it's one of my questions here rather than one of the other people's, uh, um, and it's a belief system I have as well. I just want to confirm your uh, your reasoning behind this. But okay. in Paul Smith's book called uh, "Reading the Enemy's Mind." Yeah. He details that you made a major change when you joined the unit in ninety one to ninety three, and that you and that was that you uh, and it was controversial for them, but you banished the use of monitors in the unit, and he, it says in the book this was due to, in part to findings on several occasions, and I've seen the reports that criticised SRI and CRV training for using monitors that knew what the targets were uh is uh, was that the reason why you banned the monitors or do you have other reasons for that um at that time there was a big controversy of of, of, of it was also linked to funding issues as well but the, the biggest issue was the inspector general came through and criticized the activity um mainly on the grounds that other people in the room could still provide a, a link or a, a leaking source of information. So it had more to do with trying to make the, the remote viewing room sterile, like a sterile cockpit in an airplane. Uh, you might think of it that way. And to make sure nobody's in the room that could possibly provide cues or anything like that. Um, plus, uh, the scientific procedures that were usually used at the time um, no longer needed that kind of <clears throat> connectivity. <clears throat> and there was uh, also the issue of number of people in, in the project. Uh, we didn't really have all the, the numbers of people that we were like. <clears throat> so <clears throat> there were a number of <clears throat> reasons for that. Yeah. Um, and and it, it was based on political, and I think you could call scientific, reasoning time yeah. and uh i don't know if you recollect uh but do you, was there any uh deficit in in the accuracy by removing monitors in the process or i think did some people, <clears throat> yeah some people couldn't function that way uh <clears throat> no they just couldn't function so yes uh, that went from something to zero yeah, uh, yeah but in terms of people that could function like i don't think joe mamonico for example even though he was not on the project at the time he was brought in to, uh, as a consultant uh, on different tasks, but for the other people, I think they they adapted fairly well to it. Uh, yeah. What I can remember. Um, and then, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just one more question for me, and then I'll go on to. I think Kavan had a question next. Um, but we've also seen in in the literature and from people like Paul Smith and a few of the others that um, the the. The, the ladies that entered the unit, the female remote viewers, I think <clears throat> mainly civilians, um, <clears throat> yeah. uh, you know, we've been led to believe that they were called uh, names like witches and they weren't really accepted as part of the military side of things. Um, <laughs> and also we've heard allegations that they weren't very accurate at all. Um, what, what's your recollection of, of their participation in, in, in the project? Yeah, see, this is a, a tough area to get into here. Um, um, politically, <clears throat> psychologically, <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, there there are issues here. Um, part of it has to do with perception. Now, one of the people um, I'll mention the name Angela Ford was exceptionally good at doing what she did. You couldn't call it remote viewing because it wouldn't fit the description as defined <clears throat> by SRI. And also used by uh, trainers in RV, 
what she did, she was good. And she was able to do, uh, come up with data that some of the other viewers couldn't handle, apparently. So she, she was a, an exception and did real well. And she, then she came in from a, a different background and different belief system. And I think part of the resistance was um, there was a suspicion or uncomfortableness with the with the with the concepts that she had and how she obtained information. Um, but you know, Dennis, anyone that studies this field, I think, for any period of time, comes to realize that there are a lot of ways to to tap into this information source. You know, one thing comes to, when I get in these discussions, I always like to recommend Jeffrey Mischoff's book, uh, Side Development Systems, because it shows how uh, different people and different cultures, different religions um, perceive, perceive the phenomenon. So the end result might be the same, but the way you get there doesn't look the same and they have different ways and different models and different ideas. And some of the concepts are uncomfortable to people. So that was a, fi a factor, plus uh, the philosophical beliefs of some of the people involved just did not include um, that kind of uh, spiritual philosophical concept. So, yep. so right away, there was this, this, this problem. But if, if this could have been put aside and only look at the data that comes out of the, uh, the process, then I, there should not have been a controversy, uh, yes, but there was. Yeah. And there was also um, a, 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 some discomfort with civilians being involved, because we were trying to make this a unified, a, a, you might call it a, a, a joint service um, in all <clears throat> male, female, civilian, military kind of unit. So that meant bringing in civilians uh, that were not did not have a military uniform on, so they were not military people. Um, and that, I think, might have been a bother, too, to some people. Um, so it, it was a kind of a clash of, yeah. of concepts here. Um, and one of, the, one of the other people uh, there um, used techniques which, yeah, you, 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 maybe now you and I wouldn't be concerned about this, but remember the image way back in the 70s. You didn't want anybody holding a tarot card up and say, okay, I know where the airplane is because I saw it in the cards. You know, even though cards, as you know, are, are just simply focusing devices. Yep. Yep. Uh, and it's your belief system that leads you to think otherly. But if it, if it trains the mind to go inward, and to, to where you may be accessing this deeper information. And then that's, that's the, what it is. It's, it's a focusing device. So looking into your crystal ball, uh, which defocuses your, your conscious awareness of, of the surroundings. So now, of course, you, <clears throat> you have things like, you know, looking at a white screen or something. So there, there are similar things that are still done, but they're not as uncomfortable as what, What's associated with a so-called occult practice? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. Now, maybe I'm too uh, too much of a generalist, and I'm too accepting of other people's belief systems. But um, but I came into this from a uh, a lucid dreaming background, uh, going way back, and uh, so I didn't have any any problem problem in in handling other 
concepts that people have for how do you get to the information. Uh, then you have metaphysical systems. In a certain sense, Ingo's concept of the matrix is a metaphysical system. We just give it a different name. You know, what is it? It's just a, it's an amorphous concept. It's nothing. It's no more. It, it's no more real than Akashic records or something like that. So, so anyways, I can go on and on here, but I, I think I think I've said enough here. Absolutely, yeah. I have a question from Kavan. If Kavan, if you'd like to ask your question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, Dale. I mean, uh, this was uh, really beautiful. The stories you came up with. And so the thing is, you know, I was, uh, I've been thinking like, you know, you have a background in physics and, you know, if you look at uh, remote viewing as a phenomena, right, how yeah. much of it do you think it is, let's say a, a brainwave phenomena, right? And, and do, you, do you see, uh, as in, I was also wondering whether if there were any uh, related studies in, in the Stargate project, whether trying to see whether if, uh, you know, whether there's a specific brainwave band in which the mind gets into like in which the brain gets into when when a person is specifically remote viewing and whether whether if there were any data with which you uh, essentially you know uh, went on to build uh, technologies per se uh, so uh, what what was your exploration in that uh, space yeah william we we weren't in the dia was not a, a direct research organization we supported research through the contracts and I think English one working with a group in, in Canada um, um, did do brainwave work. Um, and I can't remember the individual's name right now. I think it was a Persinger, wasn't it? Yeah, Persinger, yeah. Right. So there was data uh, at that side. We never did a specific brainwave wave study uh, per se. Um, we, we did attempt one time to look at... Um, uh, mag, um, magnetic waves that might be uh, connected with um, brain activities during remote viewing. And in fact, <clears throat> I had, I was able to get some research funding allocated for that, that um, exploratory effort. And I took many of remote viewers. In, in fact, one of them is here looking at me, although I can't see him. <laughs> that was Stephen Hayes, um, to Los Alamos, where um, and in fact, Stephen might be able to add commentary here on his experience. And so we uh, we had Stephen there, and and he was the only non, he was the only one who was not from the project. Um, and we we actually had them. We actually had um, studied the, the the possibility of mag magnetic waves uh, centers in the brain correlating to a time when you were doing remote viewing. Now. Um, we were there for about a week or more, and uh, I think the results were inconclusive. There were some statistical issues that were not totally resolved before the experiment began and sort of weakened the final results. So we couldn't really hold this up and say, hey, we found a correlation between certain areas of the brain based on the magnetoencephalograph recordings from, from uh, these kinds of sensors that can go deep inside of the brain. And we had we went there to that laboratory because it has what's called mu metal uh, in the room, the material that can keep out magnetic fields. So we were really looking at, we had to people in a magnetic free environment. So this is really, really a great environment for studying. 
of this kind of phenomenon, if you think that the waves outside might interfere, <clears throat> and if there are any magnetic kind of patterns that the brain, gener brain generates, that, that you could pick that up and find patterns in it. So there was some, some weak evidence, but I wouldn't, wouldn't go out and say uh, we demonstrated a lot. Uh, but the, the technology, I think, was not quite there in terms of the number of channels and the way the data was to be analyzed. So maybe that's a thing in the future that, that can be developed further. Um, yeah, if, if Stephen is here, hey, Stephen Hayes, do you remember that? Yeah, you know, I don't recall being informed in detail what the the purpose and the uh, you know the technology was, uh, and I didn't know if that was on purpose or I wasn't paying attention or uh, whatever. Um, and uh, uh, but I do remember the experiments that we did. We had these little caps with yeah. all kinds of electronic uh, sensors on, and uh, but you know to kind of refer back to that earlier question, you know about witches and so forth. Uh, <laughs> I remember you commenting to me, Dale. Well, you know when I was asking about this, well, government uh, senators and congressmen are not going to be really up for telling their <laughs> people who elected them. <laughs> yeah, we've. Yeah. You got witches, witches on the payroll here. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, that's the way the people defined themselves. This person thought of themselves as a witch or, you know, there was another guy that thought of himself as a shaman. Uh, you know, these are terms that really are kind of ill-defined. They are. But uh, keep, keep in mind, the people, the women that were charged with this never made those claims. They never said that. They, they never even made any identity to that, other mm -hmm. than believing that their system connects with a, a different level of, of, of uh, consciousness that might have spirits involved, you know, or representations uh, of uh, the, the deeper self that might be perceived as a spirit. But they never used the term witch. They were never considered themselves mm -hmm. to be. It, it, was oh. the it was the overlay played, uh, placed on them from the people, from some of the male members of the, uh, uh. and I think it was said to to create what you what you're saying, give an air of an air of um, um, you know non credibility. Maybe I think it was, yeah. it was mainly aimed at that. <clears throat> it's unfortunate it got out, and it's really unfortunate that it got into print because that was really unfair to to the people to give them that label. Um, somebody using tarot cards is not a not normally thought of as a witch, and um, the one individual that did use tarot cards um, at lunchtime as a mode of relaxing had nothing to do with uh, the the project. <laughs> the projects later, you know, didn't take tarot cards into the into the remote viewing room. It was a, a means of relaxing, and a means of some people did other things to relax. Um, you know, walk around the building or, or, or listen to music or something like that. So it was a, a, an issue of not of people not fully understanding where the other was coming from, uh, what led them to that belief system, um, and then um, therefore interfering with uh, 
the overall um, the, the overall acceptance by others. So I tried to revise this and try to correct it, but it was too much ingrained. There were there were some individuals that really really objected, and uh, you know they're the ones that really created the problems in other areas, not just not just that. You know, did were you aware? Or did you monitor or have other people that were monitoring what the you know, Soviet Union, the Russians were doing and what the Chinese were doing in regard to remote viewing back in those days? How, how in touch were you with what these other uh, entities were doing? Yeah, well, see, that's what kind of what got me into the uh, at FTD. Um, I had just I had uncovered some ESP work by Kogan. Um, a respected researcher in information theory in one of the leading research facilities in the Soviet Union. And he published um, a couple of papers connecting in his mind how ESP might work from an electromagnetic, electromagnetic theory point of view. Of course, we know that that theory is, is not going to hold water in, in, when, <laughs> when, you, when you do an underwater experiment. <laughs> so, but anyway, he used electromagnetics in related concepts uh, in terms of waveform uh, to develop a theory. And so I've, and then he did experiments. So it wasn't just a theory that he had, which may or may not have some validity, but he actually did experiments that were really statistically significant. And I was able to locate some of those. And I was able to locate other intelligence document, documents from the intelligence collection system that indicated Soviet working in the field. So I wrote papers on that when I was at FTD um, early on, in the early 70s. And uh, that, that was, um, read, the commander saw one of my papers because it was part of what I was sending forward for uh, assessments uh, that, that I was working on. And, and then um, he said, okay, this is interesting stuff continue monitoring it. So it's at that point where I actually build up more of a background in the, in the files and started following the Soviet work more closely. And um, we wrote a, a report later on with the, with the help of someone else uh, and it continued monitoring it and um, identified collection requirements and different organizations to go to in the Soviet Union, if, if you could you get any anyone there to find out or, or to, or to um, intercept the communication systems between them. So yeah, I set up a whole process of um, intelligence collection techniques or methods or, or places that um, might be a, a good source of targeting. And uh, use some of that data eventually to update uh, the reports. So yes, it did follow it all the way to the bitter end. Dale, <laughs> so. uh, you, men you mentioned uh, you uh, basically followed the work of this Russian person. Yeah, he Kogan. was working on Alec Kogan. Yeah, I am. I can't pronounce his first name. Imakovich Kogan, K-O-G-A-N. Okay, is this something that I can find on the internet? Like, yes, yes. yeah, he's, he did a lot of unclassified work. <clears throat> yeah, Kogan, yes, the, um, you should be able to find that. In fact, I still have some old reports laying around too that I had translated, and uh, but some of it is unclassified, was unclassified at the time. 
but that would be a good place to start if looking for the uh, more of a scientific approach, more of a theoretical approach. Um, and, in fact, <clears throat> when I uh, when I left the government in 1993, <clears throat> I treated myself to a real treat. <laughs> I said, I've been I've been <laughs> I've been employed most of my life <laughs> somewhere. This time I'm I'm going to go somewhere <clears throat> and have a good time for for one month. And I went to Russia, <laughs> of all places. <laughs> I went to Russia for one month after I retired. Uh, I had to get clearance from the security department, even though I no longer worked for DIA. But I joined a uh, Earthwatch expedition. And um, this is, so I ended up in Russia with a um, ecological group sponsored by the um, Academy of Sciences I had a passport and visa, well, had a visa approved by the Russian Academy of Sciences. So I, I go to Russia for two weeks to, um, to work in a forest at Suchi uh, near the Black Sea. And we were doing measurements like acid rainfall and measuring tree growth. It was an ecological thing to do. I just felt like doing that. It was a great time out in the mountains like that, out in the Caucasus, in the wilderness. On the way back, I spent two weeks in Moscow and uh, I had a very delightful meeting with Kogan. I was able to arrange an interview with Kogan. Uh, I needed to have a translator with me uh, to get you know, really for him and me and me and him. So I got to talk to him um, very directly about what he did, uh, what kind of experiments that he did or knew about. And um, I know he was suspicious and didn't say everything, but I got some really good insight from his work, from that interview with him, and a very delightful individual. Um, he had to be very careful about uh, everything that he did, even, even in the 70s, when I first got hold of um, some of his reports, uh, because there was still some suspicion in the Soviet Union about the phenomenon in um, and, and Marxist thinking, it was too idealistic, therefore it reported on the occult. So, so he, he had a, <clears throat> he had a tightrope to walk between scientific respectability and, and getting people to do experiments for him. And some of the work he did was uh, really quite statistically significant, but it was kind of modeled after the J.B. Ryan work using cards, or actually numbers, numbers uh, one to nine, that ended up um, I think in one experiment, uh, the participants had 79 correct out of 124. Now this is based on uh, one to nine. So you compute the probabilities of that, you know, that's off the wall. <laughs> Those numbers going to the other room. So very significant um, under controlled experiments. And then the way he did it, he didn't do it like J.B. Ryan did. J.B. Ryan at Duke University relied on people to do the, the Zener card work, the five symbols, and they would generally relax, I guess, in, in their room and do what you would call guessing, just write down uh, whatever they felt like writing down. Oh, it's a cross, it's a wavy line or whatever, and just, just write this down. There's no perception of anything other than an urge to write a number. <clears throat> now, what Kogan did, and this is really why I became attracted to his work because it was kind of done my alley, <laughs> so to speak. <clears throat> he had people relax and, and instead of guessing, um, he waited until 
they could actually perceive a number forming in their mental screen. So they would sometimes one, one individual would kind of sit there for the five or 10 minutes before something happened. And then he would start drawing a shape that looked like a number or whatever that number might be. It's a five. Oh, this, this one's a nine. So what he did was he relied on time, not forcing people to perceive anything, but he also invited them to allow their subconscious mind to present the information in, in a visual form. So that's how he got his good results. So he was relying on a visual aspect or approach to what you might call the card guessing paradigm. And the reason I like that approach was because it sort of tracks the kind of thinking I've had over the years. And you know, I'm not an official remote viewer. Uh, I, was, I never went through <clears throat> any of the remote viewing training programs. Um, but what I do, um, if you want to call it remote viewing, is more like what Hella Hammett did and just simply uh, relax and, and await for the, uh, the image to appear, which is, which is really follows from my work in lucid dreaming. Um, and lucid dreaming is pretty much a conscious experience while you're dreaming when you can actually see the images. They're right there in front of you. And that's why I, I regret so much not having these visuals because um, when we come back later, I want to really focus more on that with my visuals. Uh, from the work I've been doing in recent years uh, with lucid dreaming and dreams and replicating target, um, targets uh, or scenes in, in the dream state, which can be really accurate. But, but a lot of that, I'm inspired, and, and Kogan inspired me actually to, to move in that direction. And also another individual that inspired me greatly was um, Harold Sherman. He wrote that book many years ago on thoughts through space, a really classic experiment uh, tracking um, his, his colleague, uh, Sir, Sir Hubert Wilkins, when Wilkins was in the Arctic looking for a missing airplane. Uh, and Wilkins used the more uh, visual thing uh, approach to the phenomena as well. So anyways, yeah, Kogan, um, if you can find more of his work. And then there are other names too right now. Uh, <clears throat> I don't remember them all. I'd have to go looking. Uh, so, so did Kogan mention uh, like a specific brainwave uh, when these people are, you know, getting into a relaxed phase? Was, was there like a study that he'd done that he'd mentioned? I didn't find anything at that time in Kogan's work that he did anything brainwaves, uh, actual, you know, um, measuring uh, uh, um, whatever you might be able to measure around the, around the body, around the scalp. Now that's also the, around the time in Curlian became famous too. Uh, you might remember Curlian photography. Um, and of course that is a process where um, I think Seymour, uh, I've forgotten the woman's name, uh, Seymour and uh, Curlian developed a technique where um, you pass a like, high frequency voltage uh, through the body or around on, through the hands and you get these, these beautiful patterns that circulate around. And of course they used that to study what they called the, the biofield. Um, of course, <clears throat> that's, that's really just a function of what the electricity is that you're pumping into your hand. You, you're, you're really creating the field. So it's not really a measure of a biofield. But anyway, that was the thinking of, at the time. Um, and I, Kogan was probably aware of that and he may have done something along that line as well. Uh, but, 
another individual that I was able to follow up on through my through what I was able to uncover when I was at FTD doing um, the data collection for um, Soviet work in this field it was a woman called uh, Larissa. Here we go, Larissa Bilikensia. <laughs> I don't know if I did right. Bilikensia. Anyway, so I, I got familiar with her work, and and, and at one point uh, we were we were able to actually establish connections with her and uh, this is in the 80s 1980s and uh, she really had a lot of information on soviet work and through uh, through some effort on our part in the department of state we were able to actually um, bring her into this country and uh, she came into this country and um, actually worked for ed may for a while in his laboratory and she was a treasure trove of uh, information on Soviet work um, in the years prior and up to the time when she left and actually brought in an awful lot of information and documents. I don't know how she got them out of country. Then uh, They didn't have a classified mark on them per se, but they, they were really a good basic research that she was able to uh, um, squirrel away, so to speak. So, yeah, she was a, a good source, but but she she died in a, a train accident in Menlo Park. So um, I don't know what happened to all that data. It may probably still has it. <clears throat> so there, there's there's a lot of work going on. There were others too. When I when I was in Moscow in 1983, after that uh, trip to um, Suji, Suji, uh, an Earthlight expedition. I actually got myself invited somehow to one of the parapsychology labs uh, in, in Moscow. And um, <clears throat> I was really suspicious about this, but it's one of those times when you have to trust your, your intuition. And I, I felt it was okay and safe to do this. So I, I did go there and I was able to actually observe some of the Soviet experiments. And uh, <clears throat> it kind of on a, we were kind of like in a viewing booth. They brought me into a viewing booth, one-way mirror, one-way glass, so you could, you could see down, but they couldn't see in. So, so we were observing the people down in the laboratory area. This is in a medical facility. I think it was the basement of a hospital, I'm not sure. And they were doing experiments in, um, uh, oh, in, it was it, it was an influence experiment. Uh, it was kind of like the staring experiment that Marilyn Schlitz, uh, the, the ions, did years ago with uh, SRI, where you go into a room, um, looking into a TV monitor, at your colleague in another room, <clears throat> and you imagine that person either getting excited you know, by riding a bicycle. Uh, or <clears throat> a peaceful walk in the field of daisies. So <clears throat> the differential between the EEG or the GSR, galvanic uh, skin measurement, uh, and it, it changes according to what mood, uh, what picture that's being, you might say, um, intended for the person in, in the other room to experience. So these experiments, the staring experiment has demonstrated statistical significance that 
uh, intentions like staring at someone like that, even though they don't know when you're actually staring. This was double blind, uh, randomly <clears throat> staring, no staring kind of thing. And they, uh, there's, there's significance to the experiments indicating that an individual's physiology can pick up these thoughts or these intentions, even though they don't know that what the image is supposed to be or what the uh, intent of the experiment is in terms of are you excited or you're walking through a field of daisies. So that was the kind of experiment I was watching uh, in Moscow that night. Yeah. And, uh, but they were, they were more intense. They, they actually had uh, very strong emotional uh, thoughts or pictures than the so-called uh, influencer who was in another room um, was intending for the individual that was being monitored to experience. Some of these were, were never recommended to anybody, you know, imagining being stabbed, for example. So no, I, no, we wouldn't, <laughs> I don't think any, I don't think the American Parapsychology or the, the American Psychological Association would condone any kind of experimentation like that. But that's the kind of thing I was observing that, that strange night in, in Moscow at that time. <laughs> Dale, um, in the Stargate archives that I got the, released by the CIA, I've seen a, because uh, it's a relevant topic to what you were just discussing, I've seen a handful of documents that detail uh, what they call uh, remote action, uh, what we would call, and what you've just been discussing as remote influencing. Yeah. Um, do you know, but it's, it's scant documentation. It's only three or four that I found. Do you know if there were any programs that were looking at that on our side of the pond? No, I'm not aware of that. Of any. That doesn't mean that there was some squirrely thing going on in the CIA, but, but we certainly didn't know about it. Right, okay. No. We had to be really careful about this kind of thing. You know, we had a really strict methodology or protocol that had to be reviewed every year um, by the inspector general and the human use committee. This was a big one we had to go through every year with it and run runs through either the SecDef or, or the, the Secretary of Defense himself. Uh, and in fact, um, there was a couple of occasions when, when I actually had to, to do that, that presentation or that dialogue not really a presentation, but to get the documentation through to guarantee that what we were doing did not include anything like that. And uh, I think that's why um, early on, um, the program is really tight on what we did and what we could not do. So anything that looked like it deviated from um, the remote viewing concept, it would not be allowed. So with no exception. So, so later on, <clears throat> when individuals in the group started talking about extended remote viewing, we had to be careful how that was presented because we didn't want to make it look like we deviated too far from the conscious state awake remote viewing approach. Yeah. And of course, I'll challenge anybody <laughs> to tell me what is a what is an awake state anyway when you start <clears throat> doing remote viewing particularly yeah. at some of the later stages of remote viewing. So we had to be really careful about that. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean there wasn't some behind the scenes stuff that people okay. would talk yeah. about on their own, but it was not anything official. Had, it, had we done that officially and it been detected or reported, we would have been canceled in, this, in this flash of a second. Yeah. 
And uh, because we're on the, we were, you know, in, also in the 1993 timescale when you when you retired as uh, chief of the of the Fort Meade unit. Yeah. Um, I see in the uh, in the literature like Paul Smith's book and a few other places that um, it's claimed the unit's capabilities as doing uh, operational and very good remote viewing were waning at the time in in the 90s, almost like it was being purposely wound down is that your view of of what you think might have been happening you know political or other reasons well there were a lot, there were a lot of political pressures to be sure i mean we knew that the um the, the organization of the the, the unit would, would probably be dissolved um, we knew that the commander did not want the unit um the individual that was the best support for us had retired and that was dr jack Verona. And the individual that took over really was either too uncomfortable with the topic or didn't want it in the first place, but he tolerated it. Um, and the commander that came in later didn't want it at all. And he had originally been in the army, I think in INSCOM or the intelligence command and didn't want it then. <laughs> so, so we really didn't have <clears throat> much of a chance. And when it was transferred tactically uh, to the CIA, it ended up um, with an, a, a director of the CIA that also did not want anything to do with the topic. <laughs> so we could see that happening. Now, under those conditions, certainly things would start going south. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. plus the tasking was, was shifting around a little bit and this uncertainty and what should or could we do and what was the usability? Uh, what would people do with the information? You know, some tasks were a lot better than others. Uh, if we were to only um, provide tip-off information or information that provide leads to other sources or other ways of looking at the problem, this would be a benefit. But a lot of individuals that became involved in reviewing the, the data would say, well, did you solve the problem? Did, did you actually go there and, and did, did you actually do it? Did you, did you define everything that, you, that needed to be done? Well, no intelligence uh, sensor is standalone. So, you know, we always make the statement that, well, this is just a piece of many ints, many sources of intelligence. Um, so it technically should not have been looked at that way. Um, how did it contribute to the other pieces? Did it lead to something else that then provided a, a better clue or a better understanding of what, what the intelligence question was or what, what the task was? So <clears throat> there were problems in, in the tasking, yes, uh, unclarifying of what, what could or could not be done with it, uh, the nature of the task, uh, the interest that the people might have had. Of course, remember, these, these, by this time, we're doing more blind stuff, so they mostly didn't know what, what the original idea was behind a task um, or the intent, other than it was an interesting intelligence need, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And well, I have a I have a following question for this, and you yeah. feel free not to answer this one. But uh, for the first twenty years of me investigating, I couldn't find any evidence for this. But over the last four to five months, I've had uh, off the record confirmation from two very highly placed sources now in that were in the remote viewing uh, unit in some way that there is is an existing remote viewing program within intel agencies in the U.S. Do you have anything you could add to this? 
I don't, I cannot deal with that. I don't know. <clears throat> I'm keeping myself away from that, that arena. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. Um, I've always suspected that there were groups that would be interested in the topic, obviously, uh, <clears throat> and, and might from time to time reach out to individuals, a former member, for example, and on individual tasking. I think that's occurred a number of times. <clears throat> but to set up a specific group, I can't say, unless it's tied into something that parallels, that maybe something that's related to an, another um, topic in the life sciences uh, that might fit in and, 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 and uh, be, be yeah. I, mean, I don't want to say buried as part of it, but, but we kind of like a natural to it, one of the human use type things, or um, yeah. so something having to do with biological phenomenon or parameters that might be of interest. I, I don't know. I'm just freewheeling here. Yeah, so sure. I, I'm, I, I think it could, could be done, but whether it would be called a remote viewing unit, uh, probably not. Maybe something yeah, yeah. parallel to that. And uh, But I don't know. I'm just, I have no idea. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for for yeah. the answer anyway. Uh, yeah. I have a question from Tunde. Uh, this was off Facebook. He yeah. says, has Dell ever experimented with shared dreams by multiple viewers or utilize hypnosis techniques with your remote viewing or your other work? <clears throat> Never. No, we, we did not get into hypnosis and I have not done any of that. I think at one time there's a little study at, at SRI, uh, but I don't think it uh, extended very long. Um, but I personally have not gone into the hypnosis group. I have friends that are hypnotists, um, uh, even locally here, but we never really looked at it from the point of view of would this help in um, viewing. Um, so no, I, I personally haven't had any uh, connection with remote viewing. There was another part of the question. What was that? Uh, oh, uh, have you experimented with shared dreams? Oh, shared dreams. Viewers? Oh. Well, okay, not not in the group, not with the not with the remote viewing group, not with the Fort Meade unit people. But <clears throat> on my other hat, <clears throat> that of a lucid dreamer, yes, um, as a member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams, there, there are times when we have um, mutual dreaming contests, and where the objective is to uh, to share dreams. That's part of the um, the, the desire to, to have. Uh, a dream where we all have a lucid dream or some other kind of dream with a common goal, uh, you know, and, and meet there, so to speak, in, in the dream space. Now, um, unintentionally, that did happen one time uh, <clears throat> early on when I was still in the foreign technology division. <clears throat> I had set up a project with the, the same woman that did the airplane, uh, the African airplane thing. Uh, <clears throat> I set up a project that was intended to be a, a long distance remote viewing um, practice thing <clears throat> with, with a colleague that was visiting in Detroit, Michigan. <clears throat> and what he was to do was <clears throat> to find an interesting place or site or whatever location in the Detroit area or anywhere in Michigan or even between Dayton and Michigan, um, that he would then stop and doing and do the, the, the Beacon style remote viewing approach. And that Rosemary would uh, uh, attempt to uh, describe it. Okay, so this went on and this was done in the evening. So <clears throat> that 
that night, I had a really strange dream where, and I'm not part of this, I'm only setting it up. But since I'm a dreamer, I, I dream all the time. So it's not unusual for me to, to have a dream. But this time, the, I, the dream I have is I'm in, in, a, in a balloon of some kind and I'm going up in the sky and all of a sudden I fall out of it. I'm going down to the ground and I think I'm gonna crash into the ground. <clears throat> but in lucid dreaming, when this happens, you just simply wake up. <laughs> you don't have to go all the way down to be bashed. <laughs> okay, so now dream. <clears throat> Um, falling dreams are common, but not necessarily falling dreams in a lucid dream, because I was aware I was dreaming. Okay, the next morning when I uh, went to collect the information from, from Rosemary about what she thought this remote site was, or this distant site was that my friend was looking at in Michigan, she apologized and said, well, you know, I couldn't work on that. I, I just couldn't get going. Visitors come in or something, distracted. But I did have a dream that night. Okay, <laughs> tell me about it. She said, well, it was not an ordinary dream. It was a lucid dream. No, I said, well, okay. <laughs> what, did, what happened in your dream? She said, well, I'm, I'm in this something like a balloon or something, and I'm up in the sky, and all of a sudden, I'm, somebody pushes me out of it, and I'm falling down to the ground, and I'm looking around, and somebody with me, but I can't see who it is, and we wake up before we hit the ground. <laughs> So <clears throat> it looks like we had a mutual, unintended, lucid dream. Thanks. Now, the odd thing about it is it did not occur at the same time. Hers was one hour different. So <laughs> I don't know what to make. So, so people in the, the IASD, the International um, Association for the Study of Dreams, that do mutual dream work, realize that what they call mutual dreaming is not totally mutual because there are usually always time differences between when the individual has that dream and when uh, and, and the others involved. There are differences in time. So you might say that it's really not a mutual dream at all. You're just dreaming about a, a, common, a common objective, um, but it doesn't have to be there together in, in a dream space uh, at, at different times. So it's, it's, it's as if, it's as if we, we create this, the picture of the target in our minds independently uh, of the others. So, but, but because we know it's going to be a mutual dream, you will probably see your buddies show up in the dream. So represented as some dream character. They may not look exactly the same, but uh, they're there anyway as a dream character. Hmm, that's fascinating. So mutual um, yeah, mutual dreaming is um, an interesting topic, and um, there are books written on that, and people actually do believe they are sharing at yeah. the same time uh, the, the dream time space. And it's a it's a shame that we couldn't get the uh, share screen working because I yeah, uh, because I have a lot of a lot of dream stuff here too. Yeah, a, a few weeks ago, uh, I saw a presentation of your current research where you're doing uh, you're doing your in your dreams you're using essentially remote viewing to predict cartoons and you were getting some absolutely yeah, yeah. amazing results on that yeah yeah but hopefully we, we'll get you back in a few weeks time and, and we can arrange that for these guys yeah, to have well, a look at that that's part of what i was going to talk about yes today. Yep. yeah yeah okay so that, I, that'll be i have a couple more questions because i don't want to keep you for too much longer but one of them from jeremy uh and this is this is that because you've just been made uh Vice President of Erva, yeah. he asked, uh, "Where do you see the future of Erva um, and its its part in remote viewing?" Well, it, 
yeah, we're, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think we'll have a strong role, a growing stronger role. We're increasing our um, you know, community reach. Our, uh, we're connecting more with the social media. We have, we have people, volunteers that are working that one uh, in, in strong focus. So we're expanding our, our outreach. No, I, I see Urba having a good role, a strong role in the future of remote viewing. I, our strength is, is keeping um, the viewpoint on, or keeping the view on credibility. Um, we're watching uh, as hard as we can, the connection with research and making sure that we have a, a good blend of, um, of the, the um, subjective as well as the uh, uh, research oriented work that will help us understand the, the phenomenology, the, the phenomena a lot better. No, I, I see a, a growing role for Irma uh, in remote viewing. So that's my goal. And we, <clears throat> I think the latest issue of Aperture will probably have to illustrate that too, because that's a really good issue. And it's beginning to show the scope and what we can do, what Irma intends to do and expand and reach out. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm very optimistic myself. Excellent. Uh... And I, I have one last question here, um, and you don't have to answer this, but did you have a, a, a favorite on who was one of the better remote viewers whilst you were working uh, for the Fort Meade unit? I don't like to make <clears throat> estimates of who relative value of people or strength. I just, I just assume pass on that one. Okay. Did you, uh, uh, we've also seen some, um, controversial arguments uh, on the various remote viewing media, you know, especially social media and, and the like. Uh, from different points of view, like uh, Ed May has a point of view with Joe McMoneagle that uh, remote viewing can't be trained, but then there's the other camp that says it, it does. Do you, do you have a, an opinion on if it can be trained? Yeah, I do have an opinion, uh, more than an opinion, I think. You have to define what is learning. How do people learn things? Uh, you, you learn by practice. So any, pro any procedure that makes sure there's lots of practice sessions or that you have a very clear way of practicing the technique, whether you're playing golf or tennis or whatever, to improve the method, to improve your own response, to, to improve the way your body responds, the way your brain functions on, uh, on, the, on the processing. I think the training is a big plus. So any, any um, practice is a, a big advantage. So any training process, what's called training, has practice in it, is in fact training. Now, can people even, can you filter that out and say, well, what, uh, can, you, can you improve without training? I don't really think so. So I, I think there's combinations of training and intent and motivation and desire that all uh, factor into this too. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the belief system is important. Um, so I, th in general, I'd say training does work. Yes. Yeah. And um, it's true. Some people can walk in off the streets, like like Rosemary did. The, the woman found that did the airplane thing. It doesn't need any training. I mean, she's already yeah. really up there on the level. Um, and, and in fact, I was really fortunate that she was actually in the organization. Um, that was almost like a synchronicity um, having her come on board. So um, 
I said, motivation is big, intent is big, and uh, that's part of training. Yes. So therefore, training works because you can generate all those factors, these psychological factors, and they also relate or they, they flow back into the physiological aspects as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, you learn what doesn't work and you learn what does, um, like in any learning technique. And there may be also other features that sometimes aren't always brought into this um, yeah, in terms of um, like meditation or, or, or ways to really sharpen your way of concentrating or detaching from um, outside reality, you know, through something like meditation. Sometimes these, these approaches are not part of a remote viewing training procedure, um, whereas they could be valuable parts. And in fact, maybe they're done somewhat anyway, without calling it that. Um, but intent and, and desire and, and practice, that's, I call that part of the package. Yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah, I totally training, agree. Yeah. Training, training will then, then work. Excellent. Well, I think we should leave it here now, Dale, because we we sure. kept you here can for I add, two hours. Can I can I add the question, please? Yeah, go for it. The last question there. Hi, Dale and Dimi. Uh, my question is uh, about what you think about about free will, uh, because you have a presentation a few years ago. I don't know if you if you hear me. I can't hear. Okay, you have a presentation about precognitive about futures yeah and uh, about you being in doubts or or having issues about free will and what does this tell us about timelines and so on what's what's your uh, opinion now or some ideas that you have thank you yeah i was going to get into that in more detail in some detail in uh, the um, charts i had um, and what I wanted to talk about, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's really tough. It really is because I, I've seen too much that makes it, it gives me the impression that <clears throat> some futures that can be perceived or can be perceived are, are not changeable. You know, this is really a, a shocking realization for me. I hate to I hate to say that that some things are there that they seem to be fixed. Um, but on the other hand, we have freedom to move around. And for example, if, and I've, I've had a lot of, I have a lot of dreams that have to do with airline tragedies. And um, so, and, and in fact, one of them was really, really close. It was an airplane that I almost, uh, well, not almost, but it was the same kind of airplane I would have been on, but no way I would have been on it because of scheduling. So the, the accident occurred. Um, and this was a, the prime minister was a week ahead of time and it was a mid-air collision. So how, how can that kind of incident occur a week ahead of time? You know, it, it says something is fixed, but, but my ability to not be on it is free. If I know what it is, Maybe I can't change it, but I can avoid it. So the benefit I see of, of premonitions and precognitive work um, is that even if the incident is going to happen, uh, you don't have to be there. 
uh, maybe a witness, but you don't have to be directly involved in the action. So I'm at the stage now where I see two things happening. There is a timeline that's fixed. And then there are things around it that oscillate around this that have degrees of probability. Um, and, and then we may or may not be involved in it, or <clears throat> we may be able to change something. Um, I had one example in my presentation where, and then I'll <clears throat> go into it briefly here. It, it's the only example in my own experience where I've actually, I really do believe I changed the outcome of a, of a future. I know it sounds contradictory, but that's the way I see the experience, the, the incident. Um, it came from a dream because I, I dream a lot. I'm, you know, every night I have stuff going on. And we all do. We all dream about 25% of the night. Uh, that we in sleep time. And we call that rapid eye movement sleep REM, but it's always going on. But, but for me, it's, it's going on all the time, I think. So in this dream, it, I see um, a white car explode. It, it looked like the car my wife drives. You know, it's not a good dream to have when you see a car explode, fire, explosion. So because I've spent most of my life working with dreams, the first thing I do is analyze it from the point of view of um, psychological meaning. Um, so fire always generally to a, to a therapist uh, is an indication of anger. You know, do you, do you <clears throat> I'm talking to myself, I said, do you have harbor any hidden anger toward your wife that's not been expressed properly. Yeah. So I had to go through the self-analysis. Of course, no, at that time, or any time, I've never had any kind of anger like that. So then number two is, well, if it's not psychological, then uh, is it real? So the next thing I do the next day is go out and inspect a car. And there's actually nothing leaking there's nothing no gas anything uh, leaking from the gas tank or anything or in the car so yeah okay that didn't work out either so i ignored it uh, <clears throat> puzzled about it but then the next night i just couldn't sleep and i knew that there was something wrong so the following day i took that had that car took the car to a garage and had a mechanic check it out and within a day or so, he called me and said, hey, you, you were really lucky you brought this car in. He said, you were driving a time bomb. And then he went on to explain <clears throat> that the fuel tank, which, which is embedded in the gas tank, the fuel pump, which is embed, embedded in the gas tank and shorted. And had I let the fuel drop below its, into the fuel air ratio, where it's just vapor above it, it would have exploded. Uh, just like what happened to TWA 100. Um, so he said, you're lucky you brought it in. So, okay, <laughs> I did not know that that danger existed. So what did I do? Uh, did I stop? <clears throat> did I prevent a future from happening? Was it a probable future or what? Uh, either way, um, I had it fixed and uh, no gas, <laughs> didn't have any explosion. So there you are. But that's the only, the only dream in my experience where I really feel I have prevented something from happening that was presented in a dream. <clears throat> I've had a lot of dreams where uh, I was better prepared 
and avoided the situation or actually helped somebody. Um, so so it's, I, I think there are times when we, we can affect our, our response to, to a potential danger, but I don't know if, uh, if we can actually stop it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Dale, it's been nearly two hours, so we'll leave it there. But uh, it's been a fantastic talk, and you, you know, you share some great stories with us. And we'll definitely have to get you back on, uh, maybe in June or something, uh, to get get these presentations out for the guys to see. Yeah, it's um, you know, talked around a lot of it already. So maybe the next time, uh, I won't need to spend as much time Absolutely. on, yeah. on the, uh, the government stuff. I need yeah. a little more time on uh, the work I've been doing and implications of that. Yeah, I'm I'm really you know a after seeing the presentation, did I'm I'm really keen on the guys seeing that because it might give them some avenues that they can yeah. uh, use their remote viewing with as well. Yeah, sure. Okay. Excellent. So yeah, I just want to say on uh, on behalf of uh, the forty plus people that have been in this evening, thanks for sharing your time and and your knowledge and experience with with us. Well, I appreciate that very much and uh, hope it's been beneficial, helpful, and I always enjoy talking about it. And Stephen, good to see you again. Great to see you, Dale. Hey, let's get together. Let's do some stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. you, did, great. you did great that time in Washington. <laughs> Wasn't that funny? Wasn't that funny? Yeah. 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 Uh, that was great. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you so much, Dale. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, Thank you, everyone, for a good evening and for all the good questions and everything. And as I said, we'll arrange something with Dell uh, in, in June and we'll, we'll get him back to do some more for us. So, yeah, thanks, Dell, and thanks, everyone, for coming along. Right. And also, we need Bye. to work out the techniques here. So maybe we need to get back in line separately to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Me and you would do some separate stuff to, to you know, get okay. Zoom working properly. Excellent. Okay. Right. And again, thank you for this evening. Thank you to everyone. Have a great weekend and I shall see you soon. Okay. Great. That was fantastic. Take care. I'm glad Take Dale's care, coming back. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank, Thank you. you Bye. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.